Hey everyone, it's Bo. I wanted to pop up what, here at the beginning of the show just to let you know that, firstly, this is going to be a longer episode than usual. We had a great discussion and it was hard to really cut down the meat, but we did the best that we could. As well as letting you know that there's going to be a trigger warning on this episode for discussions of transphobia as well as ableism and suicide. Some of these topics that we'll be discussing were handled well within the shows and others extremely poorly. And I wanted to let y'all to be able to know if that's something you don't want to listen to, click off now and join us next episode. I hope you have a good morning, day or evening whenever you're listening to this. And on with the show. And then I originally agreed to do Dark Angel because I knew that Jensen Ackles was in it and I have a very soft spot for Jensen Ackles. Then I found out that the character that I know him as is in the second season. Oh, that was so confusing. Season two, we've both been vaguely spoiled about things. Uh, and because of those things, uh, we are taking as long as fucking possible to get a season two. I don't care what you say. We are, we are taking our time. This is Dark Angel. Welcome back to You Got to Know. This is this is going to be a fun episode. It's going to be something. By, by now, everyone knows that like we're talking about Dark Angel, but like today, I really had to sit back and think after watching it about like how I even found out about this show, and I honestly feel a little let down from the hype I was given. Really? See, um, the way that I f- the first. <laughs> first place i ever heard about that dark angel was in a post discussing the origins of abo and the (laughs) fact that it came from a dark angel inspired supernatural fic (laughs) and you know what i was led to believe i was about to stumble into some weird furry kink shit that got put on tv and this was so goddamn tame. <laughs> See, but we didn't watch the second season. And from what I know of the second season, I think that's going to be where it gets weirder. I have a lot of feelings about this show, but in a good way. In so many ways, it's kind of like what Birds of Prey wanted to be and failed at spectacularly. Even some of the plots are honestly a little similar. What I wrote specifically to talk about that I absolutely love about this series that I think a lot of other shows fail at to some degree is that actions have consequences. Oh my god, do they have consequences in this show? They have very long-lasting consequences that keep coming back up, like Max getting the implant, well, that's how they can track her. Or... Mm -hmm. Uh, most importantly, Max deciding to not help Logan at first and getting him paralyzed. Yeah, because, oh, uh, yeah, first episode. First of all, the first episode is an hour and a half long. Mm-hmm. Totally worth <laughs> Which, it, though. Oh, yeah, that was just terrifying to see when I started it. And literally the entire time I keep saying, like, it can't be this good. No, this 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 isn't supposed to be good. <laughs> But it was really, really good. Max is a genetically modified human who was bred by a government agency, along with like, I think it was like 50 other kids. 
but she is genetically modified. In 2009, keep in mind this show is written in 1999, in 2009, 12 of those kids escape. And then we pick up 10 years later in 2019. Oh, God. Max is a cat burglar in Seattle. And at one point... And a bike messenger. Don't and, forget and, about bike messenger. Oh, yeah. No, can't forget about Jampony. You cannot forget about Jampony. <laughs> and she ends up burglarizing... Uh, this rich white guy in a penthouse who then tracks her down and asks her to be, you know, his personal cat burglar who helps him on his political missions because he runs a pirate news broadcast because everything is corrupted. Absolutely everything is corrupted. And those two are so Mm -hmm. fucking good. And in the very first episode, she refuses to help him And when she refuses to help him, she watches on the news as a drone catches him in a shootout trying to save a witness for a case he's working on. And he gets shot in the spine. And one thing that I do just want to, like, casually mention is from my uh, mysteriously acquired knowledge of spine and spinal injury... It doesn't just sound like medical babble when they talk about what's happening to him and like when he has doctor's appointments and they're discussing bullet fragments and migration. It's like, I can't say that it's accurate because I am not a doctor, but it actually sounds like they were doing their homework about traumatic spinal injuries. Mm-hmm. It, it That's kind of a through line of this whole show is I couldn't tell you if any of it is correct if any of it is accurate, but they make it feel like it could be. And they yeah. they don't skimp on the writing. There's a lot of thought being put into it. On the topic of a lot of thought and not skimping, <laughs> I have to talk about the world building. Oh. Because it's, and like world building, I would say ties in with the visual aesthetic of the whole show. Mm-hmm. But this has got to be one of my favorite depictions of post-apocalypse ever because they fit with what my personal post-apocalypse theory is. And that is that after the initial chaos, people are just going to kind of keep doing what they were doing. It's just people trying to rebuild their lives and rebuild their cities. And like the Black Death would have looked like an apocalypse to people in the 14th century. And yet society didn't completely collapse. We didn't become roving bands of cannibals. It was mostly just, like, people kind of picking up where stuff left off and rebuilding. Mm-hmm. And, God, the set design for it all. Because, like most shows, especially shows that are set in the Pacific Northwest, it was shot in Vancouver. I have watched plenty of shows that take place in, or shot in Vancouver, like your Supernaturals, your Smallvilles, it's economical. Mm-hmm. But the way they did this whole show, I legitimately could believe that they shot in Seattle. Like I, I'm actually from Seattle. Like I was born and raised in Seattle, and there was a lot there that I'm like, yeah, I 100% believe that that's <laughs> downtown Seattle. They did really good with their location scouting. And I'm not as familiar with Seattle as you are, but I will admit that I'm re-watching Frasier right now. <laughs> and that's set in Seattle. And admittedly, they're outside a lot less, but it just doesn't look 
at all realistic. Not when you see things through windows, not when they're supposedly on the street. Like, but Dark Angel, it looks like Seattle mm-hmm. and it looks like the Pacific Northwest. It sounds weird to say they talk like they're from Seattle, but they're, they reference so much local stuff that I never hear in other shows that take place in the Pacific Northwest. I love that they remembered the fact that the Pacific, well, okay, specifically Washington Pacific Northwest is just riddled with all of these weird little islands. That's realistic. And the fact that once you get outside the cities, it gets very rural very fast. They looked like places that I've been. Again, with the world building, one of my biggest pet peeves with post-apocalyptic movies is that, movies and shows, is that they always show things at night. My favorite movie is guilty of this. So like, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about. You know what my favorite movie is. There's a lot of daylight scenes. And they don't, first of all, they don't always show Seattle as being overcast and gloomy and rainy, which is a pitfall. Oh, it is quite sunny. Yeah, it's, it's sunny. Like, Seattle has sunny days. It doesn't actually get that much. Like, it gets a lot of rainfall, but not as much as other cities. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't constantly raining. They showed the city in the daylight. They showed people just going around, living their lives. Okay, we should back up for a second to explain why this is post-apocalyptic. First, I'm going to say that one of my beefs with the show is that I don't think they did a good job at introducing us to the Pulse. They did it too early in the kind of exposition that I hate, Mm -hmm. and they did a way better job of explaining the Pulse in the 12th episode, Haven. But anyway, the Pulse was basically a enemy of the United States sending out a um, electromagnetic pulse that just broke down all of our technology. Like it wiped all records. It seemed like a very Y2K sentiment too, that just like all digital records, all electricity, totally taken out. Oh yeah. it. I mean, it was written in 1999. The show is eight or nine years after the pulse because the pulse happens after her escape from manticore i think they said it was 2011 that the pulse happened yeah so it's been it's been a few years and they have infrastructure again there's electricity again but there's a problem with finding records um they're still under martial law which i think is very interesting Oh, yeah. Also something I really like about the world building, because you can tell that at this point, people are just used to martial law, which would happen eventually. People are very adaptable. Yeah, because there's martial law. There's police drones that monitor the streets. It's it's a proper (laughs) martial state. I really like the jam pony being Max's job because I think it's very character appropriate and it provides a really good reason for her to have sector passes so she can move between the different sectors of the city with a lot of impunity because she's a bike messenger. Oh yeah. And that little that little note about like sector passes and their different sectors amongst uh this not even just the state but cities is yeah. unfortunately probably it's probably the grimmest prediction they had for like a post-apocalyptic world but also kind of in a way that that things could go realistically wrong in a worst case scenario and it makes it easier to control the city if you have it split into sectors like that and you can control who goes where so it makes sense for like a martial law thing 
while we're on uh, the topic of Marshall State, oh, that's a grim transition on my part. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> are we going to talk about how weirdly future predicting this oh, show God. is? Oh, God. Okay, because, yeah, if you haven't kind of noticed, you know, 1999 premiered in 2000 and predicted this nation-changing terrorist attack that fundamentally changed the attitudes of our country. And also we find out in Haven, I think they might have actually mentioned it here and there and others, caused a surge of Islamophobia mm-hmm. to the point where Haven, um, which is towards the end of the series, is specifically about a little boy in this small rural town who is being protected by some of the townspeople from the townspeople who murdered his parents because they thought they were both hoarding resources and knew that the pulse was coming. And that's why they had those resources ready. And then 9-11 happened um, maybe four months after the season finale. Yeah, because the season finale was in May. So then maybe yeah. September. But then there's also weird things that are very close to life in, in 2019 to 2020. Which I, st- <laughs> I still can't get over the episode... And Normal's just like, it's 2020. I'm a modern man. And I just I'm had, a modern man. I had to pause it and just process that for a minute. Okay, but I want to talk more about Diamond's episode later. But that specific episode, it has some blink and you'll miss it things that were just absolutely bone chilling by talking about how this pharmaceutical company uh, was hoarding vaccines during some kind of an outbreak that happened after the polls and made a ton of money off of it. And just like that, that little throwaway line was when I had to pause. Cause I was just sitting there like with my hands on my face going, it's going to be okay. That's not what's happening now. Yeah. You're fine. Oh, that episode in and of itself was just so, Oh, there was just so many things they talked about with that corporation because they also talked about how the pharmaceutical brand ended up making such a profit. They started to branch out in what they did and including privatized prisons where they use their prisoners who are mostly women of color for medical experiments. Which is, unfortunately, (laughs) medical experimentation on women of color has a long history in the United States on black women and on black men and it's just just oh man I want to mention Manticore because I really like how Manticore is slowly built over the course of the season and you it seems like you learn more about it very organically oh yeah it which feels very on like on par with she was a child, and also she was a severely traumatized child. Max isn't even in and of herself going to remember everything, or it's not going to feel relevant to discuss certain things with anyone. Yeah. And then with Manticore, besides just how the project is elaborated on slowly, I really loved how they didn't make perfect super soldiers. Oh my god, yeah. Like, Max 
all of the skills that Max has do have a real root in what people would want a super soldier to know and what they would mm-hmm. be trained in. But they they didn't make them perfectly. Like, she has the problem with seizures and not producing enough serotonin. I really liked that she wasn't perfect. They didn't make it so she could do everything. And for as gross as I found the heat concept, <laughs> I appreciated that they made her... She has a real physical and mental impact from being genetically engineered. Yeah, they're, they really go into just how it can mess with someone's head to be like, you were specifically designed before you were even conceived. And how unnerving of a concept that is to live with. Mm-hmm. But also, like, just kind of an aside on the heat, like, they really made that as least as little horny as they possibly could for what we were being presented with. I I really appreciate the fact that it is so barely mentioned, for one, but also just how, how much they kind of smooth over it, even when it is brought up. Yeah. The only time we really get a big into it is when it kind of serves the plot. This is utter and pure speculation on my part. I was looking into Jessica Alba, uh, who plays Max, and she's actually, like, really Catholic, and at that time in her life was very, um, she was very, like, I don't want to have sex until I get married. She was very upfront about how she felt about sex. And because of how the, um, Mm -hmm. writers and creators let original Cindy do things with dialogue, I do wonder if Jessica Alba's personal reservations and beliefs around sex had an impact on downplaying heat. Huh. Which honestly, like, I'm into that. If if that was what it took to make her more comfortable and it gave us a show that did not have a super gross sexual undertone, I'm into it because you get into a lot of consent stuff when you're thinking about that kind of a sex drive. And I kind of like how they more play it off as kind of this, I don't, God, I feel weird saying cute, but like throughout the episodes when like we start to figure out, oh, she's going to heat, it's because she's like just kind of adorably into these guys. Like, yeah, it is. It is cute. The yeah. only one that I would say like is a little too horny is with oh. normal. Yeah. Which like. I'm mad about that on so many levels, and I can't fully explain why I'm mad about that without outing myself in some really embarrassing ways. <laughs> I I just hate that I can't unsee Normal's borderline striptease. And the fact that, that... he's weirdly muscular. <laughs> I can't. I can't get that out of my head. And I hate that that's in my head. The fact that he's, and like, it's... really muscular, <laughs> I already have kind of a soft spot for him due to something we will discuss later yeah. on. But I already had kind of a soft spot for him, and the fact that he's not a statically mean character, I just have this weird love of really, like, straight-laced characters just being demolished sexually. <laughs> so as soon as she started, as soon as she started making out with him, I was sitting there like, this is a personal... I'm being personally victimized 
You don't have to put that in the podcast, by the way. I you're allowed to. I'm allowing you to if you want to, oh, but yeah. I will not feel bad if it's not there. Yeah. We need to talk about Max and Logan. They're the best. So the thing that like is in my head immediately when I start thinking about Max and Logan and how they interact is the fact that all of their disputes and all of their issues are rooted in the simple fact that they had radically different upbringings. Oh my god, yeah. And they both react, like, completely legitimately. It's not a lack of communication because they're being idiots. It's a lack of communication because they both grew up in differently but still very abusive households. Which is so interestingly elaborated on as we slowly find out more about each of them. Because, like, Max grew up in Manticore as a child soldier and lived basically in poverty since her escape. So she has a- Alone. Alone. She has a very different- I wouldn't say their moral codes are that different, but where they dispute on, like, she's saying to Logan, it's fine if you don't want to reveal- uncle's place in this really nefarious plot because then you won't have money anymore and money is important he's like no it's more important that i do the right thing and that's i think rooted very deeply in the fact that she knows how hard it is to live without money and logan has never really had to do that and for him his morality and his ethics are more important than anything else because growing up he was allowed to prioritize ethics and morals as he didn't need to focus on survival. Yeah. And that's also a point where we get a really good moment where Max straight up calls him out. Like, you are an upper class white guy and in a world where barely even the top 1% have enough resources. Like, it has shrunk. The wealth gap has shrunk that much that it's more like the top 0.01%. And she legitimately tells him, like, you're being an idiot when this is the world that we live in. Yeah. And, like, I, I appreciate that even though the show does lean more towards Max's perspective, it doesn't make Logan out to be dumb or that his decisions aren't legitimate. Oh, yeah. They completely validate his points because like Logan is right on a lot of uh, points. His uncle, the reason that he gets exposed and loses the family fortune is because his uncle was producing the police drones and the police drones were being reprogrammed to kill. They were being programmed Mm -hmm. to, to be able to search people out with just a photo of them. It reminded me so much of Winter Soldier and like the whole tri- I don't even know what it was called. It's been forever since I've seen Winter Soldier. But the idea that they would be able to track everyone on the planet and determine who has the propensity to commit terrorist violence and that kind of stuff and stop it before it happens. And Steve is basically like, that's wrong. This is just a fancy police state and that is not right. And it's, it's that kind of a thing. It's absolutely terrifying. Um, and this is coming from someone where I have debated buying a BB gun to shoot drones out of the air because I have such strong feelings about drones and air rights. <laughs> but yeah, Max and Logan, they're really, really well done characters. <laughs> 
Oh god, and don't even get me started on the two of them together. They work so well together because they have such a foundation of mutual respect. See, here's the thing is when I started watching it and we got that in that first episode, there's a scene where she breaks back into Logan's house and he's cooking dinner and there's wine and he's been waiting for her. (laughs) And they have this moment like looking into this mirror as uh, he's talking and trying to be like, look at you, you are amazing you're gorgeous and i have seen your skills you are so talented i want you to work for me and i'm sitting there like oh are we about to get some rivals to lovers are are we about to get some rivals to lovers because she immediately shuts all that shit down she's so and she's so great because like i love me a strong female character that is flawed Mm Hmm. because she makes mistakes and she owns up to her mistakes it's just delightful the only thing but like <laughs> max's inner monologue i hate it so much oh god me too it sometimes it was cute but for the most part it would have been far more dramatic if we didn't have it mm-hmm. and there was easy ways they could have conveyed her thoughts in a less telling way it's But besides that, I think she's a really well done and really compelling character. And it's honestly hard for me to think of another show where I was so immediately engaged with and in love with the lead character. Partially because I just have a weird habit of always going for the side characters and being like, that goblin in the corner, that's mine. Same. But also, it doesn't help that uh, her, the two of them, Jessica Alba and Michael Weatherly, are such good actors and they have such good chemistry together they have fantastic chemistry honestly jessica alba has chemistry with everyone not like romantic just she does really really well with all of the other actors in the cast there are things about logan that i think i would have more of a problem with if he wasn't played by a charismatic actor mm-hmm. he could have easily been really really annoying especially because <laughs> the dialogue in this show can be really really bad it can be bad that's the thing is i'm praising the writing and how well they develop characters and how good they are at plots their dialogue is terrible yeah they have some beautiful moments but also most of their beautiful moments come from their sarcastic and bantery scenes and i think the the uh whole inner monologue thing i think part of the problem with that is that it is bad in the same vein of how the dialogue can be bad except while the dialogue has good parts and bad parts the internal monologue is just see the but bad also parts. i kind of like that cuz it's little things like that that just add to how cheesy it is and i kind of enjoy a show that can be really good but also really bad yeah, I think that the the flaws do make it better. Like those CGI scenes of her sitting on the space needle. I was into that. With Logan, one thing that I definitely wanted to mention, it's very clear that he grew up in an emotionally abusive family. In the wedding episode, which might be my favorite episode, it's so great because in one line, he perfectly captures how a dysfunctional narcissistic family works and that is when he's talking about the locket that his mother wanted him to have 
that his aunt took out of his mother's jewelry box when she was dying in that episode when Max is like, why don't you ask for the necklace back? And he says, well, after all of the excuses and all of the lies and there was something else, but like excuses, lies, misdirection, after all of that, it just wouldn't be worth it. And that's how toxic family dynamics work is that the narcissists in these families make it so that it's hard to, it is more of a pain to establish boundaries and to ask for what you need than it is to just not rock the boat. Mm-hmm. And that was that was one of the lines where I was like, okay, maybe the writers sort of know what they're doing when it comes to how human beings speak to each other, because it's casual and it's something that I can see someone actually saying while still just so neatly tying up that his family is fucked up. They do really good at that. I love them both, and I love them both together. And I'm so angry that this show gave me a heterosexual canon ship. Oh, they're really... Sh- that is so goddamn cute, because, like, starting the show, I was like, okay, they're inevitably gonna start bowing, boning. This is gonna be, like, will they, won't they? And then they actually meet. I'm like, ooh, you know, this is, this is kind of cute, actually. I like this rivalry. I hope they just keep it on this bantery shit. And they do keep it on that bantery shit, except, except it's actually, um... A genuine slow burn romance? Yeah, except then you, like, you want it to be a romance. Because you get to a certain point and you're like, you two love each other and you can't talk about it. But I couldn't even be angry because they had absolutely legitimate and character-appropriate reasons for not wanting to talk about it. Yeah, because this whole show is just them yearning for each other. And they're, oh, they're just so head over heels for each other. And it's it happens pretty quick, but it's also really subtle. Because the first real incidents we get is, oh god, what episode was it? it the, the episode we thought was going to be a season finale, or like felt like it was going to be. That one, I'm not sure, but... Because um... there was an episode, it was like maybe eight episodes in, where it felt like a legitimate close oh yeah i think it was blah blah woof woof because that was the episode that max gave logan her blood right and that episode legitimately felt like a season finale also in the fact that at some point in that episode and we're only like seven or eight in it seems like max has to go out on the run like logan takes her and zach her one of her genetically modified siblings to a safe house to hide out from lidecker the man who engineered them and she kisses him goodbye like they have a very passionate kiss and it's not as cringy as i would have expected and afterwards when they were like yeah we're gonna not talk about this i don't know if it was the actors that played it off well or if it was the characters but they did a good job of making me believe that there was a reason for them to not talk about it instead of just plot device and it wasn't even totally uh we're not gonna talk about it it was like a oh we're gonna explain it away this way to each other because we really cannot 
address our feelings. We are not capable of doing that right now. And I like that they own up to that. Mm-hmm. So, Lidecker. Oh, Lidecker. I adore Lidecker. I'm a sucker for villains. Basically, any character that's not the main hero, I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna be into the weird side character, I'm gonna be into the villain, but I love a competent villain, and Lidecker is unfailingly competent. Oh my god, he is genuinely scary. He, obviously, you've got to stymie the bad guy throughout the show, because you gotta do something fun in the finale, but... Every time, every roadblock he runs into are legitimate ones that are not necessarily his fault. Like when he's trying to catch Max and Zack turns himself in, he he can't. He wants so badly to stay and deal with Max, but he knows that the police department is gonna start is gonna stop cooperating. He has no more excuse to stay, so he's like, "I'm going." And also at that point, as far as they knew, Max had fled. He's just. I hate when villains have problems with being competent, even though the lore establishes them as, like, ruthlessly competent and cunning. Lidecker lives up to all of his hype, because he is intelligent, he is cunning, he's using the resources that he has at hand, but he still doesn't, you know, win. Okay, but also the fact that he doesn't treat his kids, as he calls them, as dispensable oh i love that so much oh my god because like there are points where he is shown to be extremely cruel but also the way they frame it the more you learn the more you can see that that framing was from the angle of a terrified child who doesn't who rightfully does not like or trust Lidecker like I do not fault any of them for their hate of him but you do see that it is more complicated the further it goes through and the fact that he in his own messed up way genuinely cares in a way I I wouldn't really call it at least a healthy love he has some kind of a familial fatherly love for these children in a very twisted way. That's the thing is, I can't say that he has a moral code or an ethical code. I mean, he does, but like, I wouldn't quantify his wanting to protect the X-Fives as a moral code. But I appreciate that he really sticks to his guns throughout the entire mm-hmm. show. Like, we saw him just cold-blooded kill that terrorist. Like... He is clearly not afraid of killing people. He has no problem with killing people. But the X-Fives are his kids, and he will go to bat with them, and he remains consistent in that characterization to the point of switching sides because that was betrayed. That unfortunately means that all the good villains are gone because in the end he had that, I care more about my kids than I do my job, so I'm going to go with my kids and I'm going to protect them from y'all. And that just leaves us uh, with a genuinely incompetent villain and a shadowy committee. Yeah, I don't like the female villain. I liked her when she was a shadow figure, when it was... (laughs) Because there was a really good moment when one of the guards, or one of the agents, I forget, uh, is just like, hey, she is not happy she thinks this isn't working out and lidecker gets a real oh shit 
look. He is genuinely terrified of this woman, which made me fascinated. And then a woman randomly showed up and started bossing him around, and it seemed far more like an inconvenience and a god fuck the system than oh no, this lady's gonna kill me if I do something wrong. And I think part of it could be blamed on the fact that we don't see a lot of her. Like, they showed her just the wrong amount because it's not enough to establish her as scary and incompetent where we saw a ton of Lidecker and we got to see how just consistently cunning he is. We didn't get to see enough of the lady villain to make her more than one note. Mm-hmm. But we didn't see so little of her that she was an interesting mystery. Yeah, it was the wrong amount. It was the wrong middle ground. Because <laughs> there is a middle ground where it works and you know just little enough but see just enough what that it's scary. But this was... We somehow both saw too much and too little. Yeah. In the worst way. And it's... To go over more of the side characters, um, Sebastian, love him. Adore him. One of my favorite side characters. He He's the, um... Oh, yeah, he's one of, um, Logan's uh, acquaintances. Yeah, he was super cool. I loved him because he had a great sense of humor and, like, was really helpful and just... I like a character that's helpful because they have nothing better to do. <laughs> also the fact that that he, there's a specific level of snark that I like in a character and the fact that they let one of their only disabled characters be really snark- sarcastic and snarky amazing <laughs> always makes me happy and especially because it was never in a self-deprecating way which when the few times I see disabled characters be able to have more of a personality and they are the funny one it's usually to their detriment whereas this guy he is a scientist and he is smart but he's also going to be a little shit and annoy the hell out of you just because it's fun yeah like the starkiness wasn't his whole character it complemented his character Mm -hmm. especially because most of the time it was uh, him telling logan he's an idiot yeah that's always which Logan Logan needed to hear so, that. So, Kendra. <gasps> Kendra. What the fuck happened to Kendra? She just vanished halfway through the series. Okay. <laughs> okay, but here's the thing. They did actually explain why she disappeared. I just didn't think she was gonna 100% disappear. Because Kendra is Max's roommate for the first, like, eight episodes, I, I think. Um, yeah, in episode, episode 12 is her last episode, I think. Okay. Oh, wow. That's a lot longer than I thought. But uh, there's a subplot through most of the first half of the season where Max and Kendra and everyone in their apartment is getting or not bribed. They have to bribe a cop to be able to stay in their apartment. Because technically they're squatting. Oh, yeah, technically all of them are squatting there. There's no landlord. He's basically their landlord, but in a really shitty way. Shittier than usual. Yeah. But then in episode 12, it's revealed that this mysterious Mr. Multiples that Kendra has been seeing for a while is that cop. 
and she ends up moving in with him and we never hear from her again. And like, I can kind of get Max not really talking to her anymore. Not even in a like, you're cut off way, but just sort of naturally, the friendship kind of naturally fading away because she's she's fucking and living with a cop who extorted them for like months. But original Cindy is Max's other best friend and um, delightful news. She's for the most part, an extremely well-written black lesbian. Besides a few things where you can tell she was written by a cis man. But for the most part, she was well-written and given storylines that would have been the exact same had she been straight. And also Mm -hmm. just given a chance to be a character outside of her lesbianism. But also extremely accurate. Yeah. In the year of 2019, this woman is still in love with the Zenith, <laughs> the warrior princess. Oh, yeah. That is very accurate for a 20-something lesbian in 2020. I'm so angry that Sketchy grew on me. Oh, Sketchy. I hated him. I didn't like him for a long time because in the first episode, he's an absolute jackass. But he gets better because they give him the good lines. Oh, my God. Yeah. And they stopped They stopped making it so that Max and original Cindy were constantly getting him out of trouble. Oh, yeah. I appreciated that they dialed back on that, and I think that made him more likable. And with Jam Pony, unfortunately, we have to talk about normal. Oh, no. <laughs> and I say, okay. I say unfortunately because I have a soft spot for him, and I know that I shouldn't. Because he's like, his name is literally Reagan Ronald, but they call him normal. And he's very, he's very normal. Pretty, He's very pre-9-11 Republican. Uh, Yeah, he really is. He's also very, like, there was an era of Republicanism in, like, the 70s. And it's interesting because he dresses in very, like, 70s clothing. He really does. But he's very much, like, 70s Republican, fiscally conservative. He's annoying. He's very much, like, you guys got to get back to work. He's... He's, you know, he's, he's a killjoy. Uh, he's the hard-ass boss. And that's the thing, is he calls himself a Republican, and they call him a Republican, but the fact that he's... that This ties into something that I have on my list <laughs> uh, in the character section, is that he is allowed to be a complicated character, because, uh-huh. yeah, he's got the whole fiscal Republican thing going on, but he is unwaveringly accepting he's he's like he has a bit of the ron swanson your life is your life what just as long as you don't fuck with mine but in the more hard-ass boss annoying way yeah that's the thing is he's like if you mixed ron swanson with uh i'd say like an upper middle class white guy who worked in finance yeah that's a pretty good description that's the thing is he's he's conservative he's hard-ass boss Dresses like he's in the 70s. <laughs> Which I found really interesting to, to make him look so anachronistic next to everybody else who's dressed very, like, late. They're dressed late 90s without being distracting. Well, actually, here's the thing is, it's because they look thrifted. Yeah, they look totally thrifted. Which unintentionally actually makes it feel more on the modern side there are some characters that it's like okay yeah no that is that is so 2000s logan looked like so many family friends oh god from when i was a kid (laughs) but everyone else just looks like they thrift all their clothes 
Yeah. You know, they they could exist like across the street from me here in 2021. It has the appearance of, you know, the pulse happened and the only clothes that are readily available is the old stuff mm-hmm. because new stuff isn't being made as quickly. Yeah. So it's really, I really like that. And I really liked how they use that kind of costume language to show that normal is more traditional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They gave him the ugliest shirts, but he was still allowed to be like human and kind of likable in my opinion, but I have terrible opinions. Yeah. And like, there was the episode where Sketchy had to take over for him briefly, and oh, there was the thing of like, his job is actually really hard. So it makes sense that he's kind of, that he's a hard ass. Okay, but that episode was so sweet seeing Sketchy finally understand, like, oh, oh, now I get why he hates me. Sketchy <laughs> had some really great development through the show. The last thing I want to hit on with characters, the fact that characters are allowed to be very complicated. Because we have Lidecker and no killing the X-Fives. We've talked about Lidecker. And Normal and the fact that he calls himself a Republican and yet is, when it turns out that his girlfriend is trans, he's totally accepting of her. And the other Jam Pony employees are like, oh, he's gonna, he's gonna freak out. I wish we were there. But then in the restaurant, he's very respectful. He's very like... I, uh, I snooped through your purse. I'm sorry. I'm aware of your situation. I can't remember how he phrased it. Uh, and I'm a man. It's it's 2020. I'm a modern man. And this is not something that I have a problem with. Which also then leads into another cute moment where um, he ends up getting broken up with because the woman he's seen realizes she's a lesbian while dating him. <laughs> ends up asking him to give original cindy her number which he does and like that also i don't like that she ended up being that she ended up being a lesbian not because it's not allowed or that i think she owes normal a relationship just because he's accepting that's not it Mm -hmm. i don't like that they had the juxtaposition of normal who was completely accepting and really really cared about her And then she's like, I'm a lesbian, and gives her number to original Cindy, who is then virulently transphobic about the whole thing. And that's the thing, is like, that's just a little discontented thing that I have. I don't want to say that normal deserved a relationship with her, or that trans women can't be lesbians. Tons of trans women are lesbians. It's it's whatever. It's, It's more the fact that in that episode... Because there is a lot of transphobia in that episode. It may have some good moments, but it's 1999 when it was written. How many times can I say that? Original Cindy is unfortunately a turf. And that's the, th- that's the thing with characters that are allowed to be... Original Cindy, she's got kind of hints of some biphobia. Um, I didn't love how... She's never portrayed as a predatory lesbian, but, like, there were vibes when she was talking about the bi woman who was celibate that that I didn't really appreciate. That was also a very, oh, yeah, this was, this was mostly written by straight men, realistically. Yeah. The one female love interest she, Cindy has before Diamond comes into the picture is this, you know, cute blonde woman who we find out is bi, 
But the way we find out she's bi is because Cindy is frustrated after their date when she finds out this woman is celibate because she got out of a really shitty relationship. And they say, and I quote, what's the point of being bi if you're going to be celibate? I, the episode with the trans girlfriend, it has a lot of great aspects, but the transphobia coming from original Cindy, like, the other characters are mildly transphobic. Still transphobic, but they're still like, oh, that's gonna be... They, they expected, you know, normal to have an absolute panic and be freaked out. They address it as something that's like, oh, that's weird. Um, but original Cindy is the one who is really explicitly like, no, I'm not... She's just... A man that's had surgery that's i i like girls god yeah like literally she discusses um the way that she found out she also snooped in this woman's uh, purse found her id and then also points out that the address that uh she ended up delivering this purse back to is in an area that is heavily populated by trans mm-hmm. people And talks about how, quote unquote, the lesbian mind can get all kinds of confused up in there. It's just, and the fact that, okay, she and Normal go through this woman's purse. Normal doesn't tell anyone. Mm -hmm. And he has more reason to not tell anyone because he doesn't consider the co-workers his friends. He's very private. But original Cindy immediately tells like five people. Yeah, she literally goes to the bar and tells all of the other Jamponi employees. And it's just, it's it's inappropriate and it's unfortunate. And original Cindy gets, I don't know if I can say she gets better later on, but she gets more of a chance to be a good character. She's absolutely ride or die with Max, and I really appreciate that. But it she has bad takes. And it's not, I don't think that they encourage her bad takes. Like, I, I think it's pretty clearly shown in the episode that it is a bad take because normal is totally accepting of it when nobody expects him to be and sketch sketchy even gives her a look when she gets rid of the woman's number that's just like disgusted and confused but it's the fact that they had the only black lesbian be the one who is super transphobic that just is unfortunate yeah it's a thing where it's like you i would have much preferred if this episode had been like sketchy being the one who was being the huge asshole which would have lined up for what a little perf like he's shown to be in the beginning of the show and that would have actually been quite cute if she had been like on her side and defending her because it's like she would understand to some degree like she would understand as a lesbian that they are isolated and that they need to stick together and There's one last thing I want to talk about with complicated characters, but first, since we're talking about that episode, the first trans woman character to be played by a trans woman is in this episode of Dark Angel in 2001. 2000, 2001. Like, what the fuck? What gives them the right to have the first trans woman playing a trans woman on TV? Blew my mind. I'm trying to find the actress now. I hate that I can't remember the character's name. Was it Louise? Louise. Yeah, Louise. It's it's her only piece of IMDb yeah. trivia. And this is one of two credits that she has on IMDb. And I'm just like, Oh, she was in Disclosure. Yeah. 
She was one of the writers, I think. She was one of the creators of it. Yeah, uh, Jessica Crockett. It was just, despite the transphobia in that episode, Dark Angel continues to shock me. Yeah, it. there are those moments where it's like, this is really bad. But unfortunately, I don't want to say they make up for it, but it's a thing of, it's only maybe two episodes out of this, I would say, are that I would skip them when I watch them again, just because it's a little too uncomfortable. But every single other episode mm-hmm. is damn solid. But Diamond. Yeah, we have to talk about Diamond. Oh, Diamond is Cindy's ex-girlfriend. And this episode, for for all of my issues with Cindy, I love this episode for her because this is the quintessential my quote-unquote bad boy yet X is back in town because when you watch this episode you could easily replace diamond with a man and everything would play out the exact same it would change nothing except there are occasional gay jokes and so what one of the things that i love about the episode of diamond is diamond broke out of well she says she was paroled i think at first but she broke out of prison mm-hmm. And even though at the beginning of the episode, it's like, oh, God, she's not, she's, she's an ex-con. She's going to do something to screw them over. She does screw Max over, but it really subverts what I was expecting, which was, you know, ex-con, bad boy, she's going to betray them. But even though she fucked over Max, she had a very legitimate reason to be doing so. And it wasn't like, oh, she was in prison because she was bad. Or she was bad, just she was in prison uh, because she was trying to survive. And her attempts to continue to steal and do all of that were absolutely legitimate because she wanted to take care of Cindy. And that's also the thing is it that episode really put into perspective for me. First of all, the fact that Max forgives her because she would have done the same thing. Yeah. And has done the same thing. And also that then reminds you, everyone in this show is a criminal. This is not unique. The only thing that separates Diamond and Max as people is the fact that Diamond went to jail for what she did. Every single person here has to steal light and cheat to survive as a day-to-day person. And we're even shown the fact that a lot of these people who are in jail for doing illegal things they're not there because they're bad people. They show the fact that that prisons are the bad guys. There's literally a character. It's um, one of the side characters, Herbal, from uh, Jampony. He has a friend who comes back and is unfortunately quickly murdered. But he was his cellmate and he was in jail for forging uh, sector passes so that he could get out. Mm-hmm. and pursue better opportunities for him and his loved ones. Like, th- they perfectly show the fact that it's not a bad thing that Diamond's an ex-con. It's a common thing. And we mentioned the pharmaceutical company earlier. So basically, this pharmaceutical company owned a private prison that Diamond was put in, and they began using their prisoners as experiments and basically saying, hey you have this terminal disease, you have cancer. And they told Diamond that and said, sign this and we will give you these experimental treatments to see what helps. 
But the thing is, those were not treatments. They were completely lied to about um, being sick, and they were actually being infected with weaponized viruses. Mm-hmm. And this company wants to get her back so badly in that episode because she is sick. She's no longer receiving antivirals, and she's going to become contagious very quickly with a disease meant for warfare. Mm-hmm. Which unfortunately does lead to what some would call a kill your gaze, except I, we both have talked about how we hesitate to genuinely call it a kill your gaze because yes, she is the only other lesbian character besides Louise, the trans woman, but also because a, she gets her revenge on the people that did this to her, which realistically, that the dude that kept refusing the hazmat suit when there was an outbreak, he brought that on himself at that point. That's the thing is, I don't consider it to be a, a barrier gaze thing because it was a single episode arc. There wasn't an established thing of like, Diamond wasn't there for very long. She wasn't there for long enough that you were lulled into the idea that she was going to she and Cindy were going to live happily ever after like that Mm -hmm. wasn't something you were supposed to buy into at any point so I I wouldn't call it a barrier gaze because they're not allowed to be happy that's just the way that this universe works Um, nobody is allowed to be happy in this world and it would have played out the same if she were a man like you said and her final scene incredible she's (sighs) Fully sick with the virus, and the CEO is being an asshole, and and she comes into the room that he's in wearing a hazmat suit, holds him at gunpoint, and kisses him, infecting him with this virus, without infecting other people, which I personally appreciated, but she infects the CEO with his own virus. It's absolutely incredible. It is, I don't want to call it Black Mirror level shit, because I don't actually like Black Mirror. Twilight Zone just did it first and did it better. <laughs> but it, it was it was a really fantastic moment. Oh yeah. God, just everything about that episode hit so hard. That was also the episode that I realized though the production quality was starting to go up and as a result a lot of the style was starting to be washed out and I didn't realize it until I realized oh, original Cindy it is not quite as styled as she usually is. She's kind of just wearing plain clothes which is super unfortunate because the aesthetic and the style of like the first half of this series is just beautiful it's so gritty but then it gets smoothed out the apartment's never dirty like it was in the beginning i think they do maintain they maintained enough of it that i didn't notice it until you pointed it out but it's definitely there i do want to touch on manticore Oh my gosh, I loved everything as we slowly met more of the X-5s because, first of all, we get an extreme range of what their lives were like afterwards, but also only three out of eight of these people were white. They did not default to, for some reason, when they just got a random pool of women to carry these children all of them happen to be white. No, there's there's more people of color. There's, and also like the fact that Tinga ended up becoming a housewife. 
Ben did his own thing that we're going to talk about in a bit. Zach never let go of the Manticore lifestyle. He stayed a soldier. And then there's Max, who's a bike delivery person and a cat burglar. I do have to say it was so funny watching this and just staring at Crin like, why? Why do you look so goddamn familiar? Who the hell are you? Oh, it's Jessica Alba's little brother. And the other X5 that was introduced in that episode, you got, you called Jessica <laughs> Alba's brother. The other X5 was one of the ones who was white uh, still. I looked at her, I was watching, and we were watching this together. We were on voice chat, and I just yelled, that's Meg Masters. <laughs> I'm a supernatural nerd, and she was styled differently. She had different hair. Just the way that she gave another character kind of a snarky look, it's like, that's Meg. I don't know how to feel about the fact that both Meg and Dean have made appearances in this, but also that furthers my love of the WB. We just shuffle around the same 20 actors. Logan and ableism. So I love 90% of Logan's story because I, I love anytime we get a fun character in a wheelchair that's not just like glee you know when when we actually get good disability representation for a 2000s show logan is extremely good but also god damn it why did they have to make him walk again so i remember um before the whole walking again arc started i specifically said to you he is what Birds of Prey want Oracle to be. <laughs> yeah, he really is. And like, I I am not disabled, so I am definitely not any kind of an expert on this. And my own opinion is not as important as somebody who is disabled and who has to see themselves in media in these ways. But I want to forgive some of the bad decisions that they made with ableism because he is a character who was very suddenly and violently disabled. And I think that in the beginning of the show, they address that very well. Mm-hmm. Where, like, he's he's struggling with it, but he's really adapting to his new life. Like, he plays wheelchair basketball, he does physical therapy. He has trouble hitting the elevator button because they put it so fucking high. Yeah, honestly, like, because I am disabled. I have mobility aids. And... Logan is probably the closest I've gotten to seeing a disabled character that I really, really loved in a TV show. I I know I'm probably just not watching the right shows, but sue me. But at the same time, like I'm kind of on the same bus as you. There, but in more the point of for when this was written, this was the most thoughtful and compassionate storyline we could have gotten like yes i definitely would have preferred it if there hadn't been the storyline where max ends up giving him his blood and the stem cells in her blood help his body to walk again to heal from his spinal injury but then it starts to fail and then he literally just just gets super legs in the end i hate the fucking exoskeleton. See, I loved I loved Rain Wilson's character, but I am with you on the exoskeleton. 
Yeah, because he gets them from probably the best side character who's played from by Dwight from The Office. So you can just imagine how fun he is. But... <sighs> and, like, again, one of the little things that I don't like but want to forgive... It, okay, it's not little. It's a major plot point. But what I want to forgive but struggle with is that it makes sense to me that he... he gets so much more passionate about walking after he's been able to walk for a little bit. Like, he doesn't show any of that before he's given a taste of walking again. And I can kind of understand that he would be so much more upset about being back in the chair, even though they did not need to include the subplot of him being suicidal because of it. I think that was completely inappropriate. Yeah. But... I understand generally his character being so much more affected by being wheelchair bound a second time. <sighs> yeah, that that is something that I did block out, which is like, m- there are many things that I would definitely say, look into the show before you watch it, because there are things that could be uh, triggering they do cover some sensitive uh, things that for some people they're just not going to be able to watch such as the fact that they address hate crimes and the such they deal with a lot of heavy topics most of it is handled very sensitively but there is a big old stamp for like suicide warning on this because they have one of the most insensitive handlings of depression and mental health crises in disabled people. And it ended up just having this really <laughs> just stop being depressed punchline to it. I, I have a personal soft spot for old people. So like it, it touched my heart in a way that it was the old lady who was kind of like, you're being an idiot. Shut up. But it was... It was the way that she said it. Yeah, that's the thing, is that whole bit wasn't handled well, and if they'd taken out that suicidal thing, I think that it would be easier for me to forgive his reaction to having to go back in the chair, because he was given hope for a little bit that he would walk again, and when he didn't have hope that that would happen, he was way more well-adjusted. Like, not to say that hope is Mm -hmm. bad. Sometimes it can be bad, actually. That's a problematic opinion that I have. But (laughs) it was, it wasn't as big a deal to him when he thought he would never walk again. And he was adjusting to his new life. And there were issues. Yeah, because there are issues when you go through such a dramatic life change. But it was only after he had that taste that he was like, I hate this. Which, I mean... Honestly, I can kind of uh, relate to that to a degree, but it's still just the execution was still so bad. They could have done something good with him struggling to fully accept what was happening. Because, like, I didn't have to start using mobility aids until I was in my 20s. Mm -hmm. But I don't know how to phrase it because I also don't want to invalidate those who do have that kind of reaction. Because that is a that is a totally valid reaction to losing your mobility in your twenties, but it's it's just so complicated. Yeah, it's a valid reaction 
it's just harmful yeah. to see, I think, to see in, a ma- in mainstream media reinforcing that kind of a thing. Yeah, it's harmful to see it probably not written from a disabled point of view. There's There's a lot of moments that make me think, like, I don't think any of these people really actually understand it it feels more like they just thought this is the logical reaction and it's like yeah sure for some people but when this is the only reality that we're shown on tv as it is where if you're disabled Mm -hmm. you might as well kill yourself it's really disheartening and that i mean that is a great segue into what doesn't work with the show because we've yeah. We've given it a lot of praise. It's it's very well done in many ways. It handles a lot of things very sensitively. The plotting is great. The pacing is solid. But what doesn't work is that bit of ableism. I do not like Zach. That, I don't think he's as well-written character-wise as the others. And I get the thing of, like, he is struggling because he was their section leader in Manticore. He was ingrained from a very young age that, like, these are my soldiers. I have to protect them. I am not allowed to have personal attachments outside of them. But he's so predictable. He always comes back to save the day. Just once, I want him to actually follow through on his callous attitude. Also, he's got a little bit of a Luther Hargreaves going on. He does. And what's weird is that I actually, I'm problematic and I like Luther. I don't like Zack. <laughs> Because Zach is like the prototype of Luther Hargreaves. He he's the big tough number one who's uh, there to protect everyone, and he's in charge, and so that you listen to his orders. Also, he has a weird crush on his sister. Yeah. Who at this point, I don't really think they can use the they're technically not siblings reasoning because I am. Most definitely sure they did not concoct unique individual DNA sequences for the paternal DNA. I think part of why I like Luther and don't like Zach is partially because Luther has rampant daddy issues and that is something that I empathize with very strongly and that I like to see in media because that's when I look at a character and I go, okay, you are going in my collection Okay, now we are most definitely going to watch Smallville. He's got daddy issues, and we spend a lot more time with Luther and Umbrella Academy than we do with Zack. Zack just kind of comes in, says some mean things, reluctantly does the right thing, and leaves. That's he. I, I wasn't a big fan of him, but yeah. he also didn't have a lot of time to develop. Yeah, unfortunately. The opening sequence? The, uh, the title credits? <laughs> 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 It was bad. It was exactly what I would expect out of a cliche late 90s sci-fi show. Listen, I this show made me realize, you know, oh, I like 2000s shows because it was kind of a, it's a very unique era of sci-fi that, you know, I it is nostalgic for me. But that also leads to a lot of the... We're just going to use some royalty-free music and hope no one notices. The music is bad, and at worst, it's actively distracting from what's happening, because you're like, what the fuck is this? It sounds like a ringtone. It sounds like a ringtone taken off of (laughs) one of those really, really old smartphones. 
Oh my god, it sounds like the ringtones I had in middle school. That's exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's so bad. It, it is so bad, it is distracting, and the music almost never fits what's happening in the scene. The fight music was never paced correctly with the fighting. I do have to say, at least like halfway through, they at least had what sounded like actual music, not just pulling from a royalty-free library. Like, it's it sounds like they might have gotten some actual music after a certain point. But I still don't I'm, think they made good choices with the music they picked. I mean, but I'm also gonna say, you know, it the music that was an improvement honestly did sound like a lot of music I remember from... <laughs> my kindergarten years but then what i'm a stickler about is that even if it is music of the time that is not um as bad as what i think was royalty free stuff that they were using i think that of contemporary music they had way better options for the kind of show that dark angel was because it it seems like the title sequence and what of the marketing I've seen wants it to be this really sleek cyberpunk thing. And it's not, it's very like dirty, it's gritty, it's run down. That's what I love about it. I think it would have been way better if they brought in grunge. I think that grunge would have been a way better choice for their music. For the setting. And even though it's supposed to be set in like 2019, Grunge could still work. They even have a little moment where Sketchy makes a joke about, you know, it's been 30 years. It's about time for a grunge revival. And it's like, th then just commit, guys. You, you're you playing with the idea. Commit. And obviously what I'm going to be riffing about isn't actually true. But, like, it seems like the people who handled the music and the promotional materials and the title sequence were not the ones who were actually involved in the making of the show and were like, oh, it's this, it's futuristic. It's set in the future, so it's gonna be futuristic. And we're gonna make it appear like the future in that so uniquely 90s way. And then the rest of the show is like, no, this is post-apocalyptic. It's not futuristic. When it comes to the marketing, I like the aesthetic, but that's also because I very vividly remember, if you look at it, any promotional material of the actors it's it's laughably 2000 but in a beautiful way that's what i remember literally every single show's promo material looking like it didn't matter if it was sci-fi if it was any kind of dramatic that's usually what i remember the promo material looking like so i'm not gonna fault the actual team that's just kind of what it was like but i do have to say like it it definitely would have felt this sounds weird to say, but it would have felt a little more timeless had they, like, you know, just sprinkled in a little Pearl Jam. Give us a little sound garden, you know? There, there's Yeah. For being a show set in Seattle where they were able to somehow write it a believable Seattle, which, by the way, there are a few times where they correctly pronounce, like, some native names that was impressive that shocked the hell out of me like i have heard so many people say snoqualmie or sea home or cedra woolly in the weirdest ways i have heard people mispronounce yakima in the most mwah, beautiful ways Th there was not one time that i could really like bat an eye at them they they 
they had someone who knew what they were talking about and made sure everyone else did. And see, I've lived in other states. I've lived in other countries um, to add to my mystique. And the times when I was there, I would get together the group of the most, I wouldn't say diverse, from a lot of different places. I'd get them together and I'd pull up a map of Washington and I would start daring them to pronounce things. Oh my God, that's my favorite thing to do. That is my favorite. When I lived in a different country and I was in my unfortunately very white uh, program, I did get people together. So I got like Scottish guy, a guy from the Netherlands, all different places. And um, my favorite was the girl who I've told you about who was from New Jersey. She could not pronounce <laughs> anything. It was hilarious. But they managed oh. to hit it every single time in Dark Angel. God, I... There was this one channel I used to watch that I don't remember it, but they did like, it was a British channel on YouTube and they would do videos about like highly specific folklore and like top 10 lists of urban legends. And they would do like highly specific down to, you know, states, down to cities. I loved watching the Washington ones. Yakima was the best. God. I, I don't even remember how he said Squalicum, but it was delightful. If you want to talk about your favorite part, because I have a favorite part that we haven't discussed at all. Oh, let me check my notes real quick. Because there, there are several things that just... But yeah, what's your favorite thing in Dark Angel? Not the best thing, but your favorite. Oh, let's see. Okay. Here's the problem is I like, like, like all of it, <laughs> all of it. I cannot, I legitimately cannot pick a favorite episode. I do have one moment though that made me tear up a little bit. And it's a moment between Max and uh, Logan because I forget the episode, but there's an episode where she finds out that Logan writes poetry it is only brought up this singular time and he is very protective of it. He's just like, no, you can't, this is personal. You can't look at this. And eventually he finally says, you know, I think you should read it. I, it's about you though. <laughs> and that's why I didn't want to show you. Mm -hmm. And she reads it. And in her ending monologue, she talks about how for the first time, she feels like she's done something that matters. So that's adorable, and I'm going to absolutely derail that. <sighs> I know um, you are, because I know what's coming. <laughs> you do. It's time for another mysterious co-host bullshit take. Um, I do have two favorite episodes. The wedding episode, I'm just a sucker for, like, some good shenanigans, and that episode was all shenanigans. And then I originally agreed to do Dark Angel because I knew that Jensen Ackles was in it and I have a very soft spot for Jensen Ackles. Then I found out that the character that I know him as is in the second season and not the first. I was like, oh, well, I'll live with that. I was like, yeah, well, I'll, I'll live with that. Um, we'll watch the second one eventually. Oh, that was so confusing. <sighs> yeah, because season two, we've both been vaguely spoiled about things. Um, and because of those things, uh, we are taking as long as fucking possible to get a season two. I don't care what you say. We are we are taking our time. But we knew that he was going to show up in season two as a character called Alec. And then in season one, 
in episode, I believe it's either episode 17 or episode 18. It's in all caps in my notes, episode 17. <laughs> You're watching it and suddenly there's Jensen Ackles. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck is this? And he's a character called Ben and I did a little bit more spoiling and it, and it is revealed later that the characters had clones. Um, okay. My theory was Alec was either going to be like his twin brother who also escaped or that there was going to be clones. And that's the thing is they show in the finale that they kept using the same base DNA. So like Max faces mm -hmm. a younger version of herself. Um, yeah. So I think there was like X5 alpha batch, X5 beta batch because they're the same age. Mm -hmm. He was, you know, a clone of Alec is a clone of Ben who is one of the X5s that escaped with Max. I love this episode because I don't know how to say this mysteriously, so I'm just going to say it. I have a very um, long background of Christian-based trauma. The character of Ben also suffers from seizures, and it's established very early on that the kids who had really bad seizures were taken and dissected. So... It's something that Max struggled with because she was having a seizure and the kids just decided to escape with her because they didn't want her to die. And it's shown that Ben also had seizures and he was trying very hard to not let anyone know. And the janitor notices and the janitor gives him a Virgin Mary card. I don't know what they're called because I only know about medieval Catholicism. You know, a card of the Virgin Mary, they begin call it and says, she will look out for you. Ben essentially starts his own religion, where it's, they call her the Blue Lady, and she has, it, it has the sacred heart, so like her heart is outside of her body, they call her the Blue Lady. They create this little shrine on the roof of Manticore to her, and that episode and Ben just hit me so hard, because... To me, it's the most visceral representation of what they went through at Manticore, not because it shows their training or anything like that, but it shows how these children were creating their own comfort objects and their own comfort systems because they were not provided any. It also, in that way of showing how they coped with it and how they each process their own things, how they shared trauma and how this trauma affected each of them individually. Early on in the show, we are shown that because of an experience in Manticore, Max is extremely anti-gun. She is afraid of guns. She doesn't feel safe around guns. And because of that, she refuses to work with guns. Whereas Zach, Tinga, Bryn, everyone else is fine and happy. Then there is Ben, whose reaction to all this was to fall into this religious delusion and turn to a very zealous religious expression to try and cope with what happened. And there's even a little crossover with Tinga, where they both, part of the religion is the nominees, which is the anomalies. Yeah. And the anomaly clones or previous generations and they explain them as these monsters that live in the basement and they are essentially the demons of their religion 
and Tinga even tells her son about it in her fairy tale about this princess and her siblings running away from a bad man and the nominees. Yeah, that's I I really liked that because it is so just kids trying to make sense of their environment and find some kind of safety. So like the anomalies were kept in the basement. The basement was the bad place. And it kills me so much in that episode where at the end, Ben is like, they're going to put me in the bad place because he is an anomaly because his religious delusion makes him something bad, something that they need to contain and study. And that all that killed me. And the fact that as a response to that, he created the little shrine on the roof of the building in the high place as far away from the bad places you can get. And that together they construct the good place where nobody, where nobody is punished and you don't have to hurt other people (laughs) and you can eat whatever you want and sleep whenever you want. And just like the way that he coped with nothing but that little Virgin Mary thing and how off the rails he went later, it kills me. And what also gets me about Ben's character is that he is the closest to Zack any of them get because he has a very powerful manticore drive. He is trying to be a good soldier and there's, you got Tiri with the poem, I got Tiri at two points in mm-hmm. Poyo Loco where he says to Max, I just wanted to be a good soldier. <sighs> and it doesn't help that Jessica Alba and Jensen Ackles, they're, they're both so much better actors than like they are too good of actors for the scripts they are given but at the same time they have so much chemistry together and charisma on their own that they make that a genuinely heartbreaking scene and the fact that he is so torn like at first it bothered me that it was so hard to piece together what his pathology was but the further it got into it the more willing i was to forgive that and even believe it was intentional because he got so fucked up by Manticore where everything was telling him, you need to be a soldier, you're supposed to be a soldier. And all he has is the blue lady and how he constructed her worship. Mm-hmm. And he constructed her worship through the lens of Manticore, which was through violence because that was all he knew. Oh. And it, oh, it gets to me. And the only time, because I'm not a very emotional person, I do not cry very easily. That's generally not something that I'm very impacted by. I did cry a little bit at the end of that episode when she's holding him in the woods. His leg is broken. Like, Manticore is coming for them. And she says, I can't carry you out. And he's just like, you know what to do. And he's waiting for her to kill him. And she says, tell me about the good good place. the happy place and they just start talking about what he the the goodness that he gave them the hope that he gave them that there was a place somewhere where they didn't have to be violent and where they didn't have to live this life and he is the only one of the escapees who never got to actually experience freedom because he was got so fucked up by Manticore. God, that and that oh, and that they're talking about that, and that it is midline that she breaks uh, his neck. See that? There's not even there's not even a pause. They're just talking, and they're talking about it, and she just 
snaps his neck midline and because she knows that would be the easiest way to do it there was no anticipation there was no pain it oh that that scene messed me up too that was one of the most devastating scenes and it took me a minute to even process the fact that like she just killed Ben and you could see the anguish on her face that that caused her because basically the whole reason that even Max and Logan have this kind of working relationship is the fact that he's trying to help her find her siblings. She wants to find the other 12 escapees. And see, normally when characters are keeping secrets, especially close characters, it kind of annoys me because it's like, no, you can tell people things. But in this episode, I totally understand why she didn't want to talk to Logan about it. Not just because she didn't want him to know about the very violent things that they did as children. It wasn't just because of that. It was because Ben is her brother and she wanted to take care of him. Yeah. God, this show. It has no right to be as good as it is. And Ben has no right to personally victimize me in this way. See, that's why I call this show unfortunately good. Because by all means, walking into this, I knew that I should hate it. I walked into it knowing, like, this is going to be terrible. This is going to be so campy and stupid, but not even in the fun way. It's just going to be frustrating. And then within an episode, I was in love. Yeah. And it just kept getting big, better and better. And it kept, sub like, subtly subverting things that I didn't see coming. <laughs> Like, there are certain episodes where it's like, oh, yeah, I know what this episode is. And they just they, they just change a couple little details that make it so much better. It's, it is a good show. And I say this as somebody who has terrible opinions about things. Um, <laughs> it's a good show, and it's a show that I would recommend for anyone who's even a little bit interested. Because even though it has issues... At almost every turn, it surprised me in a good way. Yeah, it it's not going to be for everyone. It most definitely is not going to be for everyone. But that doesn't change that if you're interested, you should give it a try because it might surprise you. It might annoy you and turn you off at certain points, but that's up to you to decide. And that's the thing is, I would say, like, sure, watch Birds of Prey. It's not good, but it's not that long. And it's kind of funny. And like Supernatural, I would say, you know, go in with your eyes open, but the first season especially is solid. It's enjoyable to watch. Dark Angel is something that I'd say, okay, if you're good with these triggers, watch it. Because mm -hmm. I do not regret watching it. I want more people to watch it. I want a fandom, <laughs> please. <laughs> please, please. This show came out in 2000. We don't have much... <laughs> in the way of fandom we are being very selfish right now we want more content i've been reading fanfiction.net like, oh my god that's how much i enjoy this show and that is how desperate i am for the content okay see here's the thing is i uh i don't want to get spoiled for season two even though i know it's going to be a trash fire could, could, could you could you send me some links for some good stuff that's not spoilery yeah i mean i'm into that Hell yeah. I w okay, I want a fandom specifically for the first season. <laughs> yes, we we can pretend season two didn't happen. Like, I 
I haven't even watched it, and I'm just kind of pretending that after a certain point, it just quietly went off the air, and I get to imagine my own AU of what future seasons would be. But exactly, I like it a lot. <laughs> I didn't expect to be as in love with this. I didn't expect to come into this and leave with a new comfort show. Oh, same. I've been badgering my partner. I'm like, you gotta watch this. There's there's some boys here that you would like. Please watch it. Please. Please. Next time on You Got to Know. I will admit, it did feel like lore drops whenever we learned something new, but I was excited for the lore drops. Oh, yeah. Like, this would make an amazing video game. That kind of level. It totally would. Wait, is there a video game? I need to look that up now. Oh, yeah, I totally dragged uh, Lucian because I was just like, he looks like he has tuberculosis. Oh, you mean Mr. Michael Sheen? Oh, Michael Sheen is Lucian. <laughs> I love him so much. You know what I just realized? What? We never mentioned that this is for your birthday. <laughs> no, it's it's for my birthday. And as much as I will say about my birthday, because I am the unknowable co-host, uh, is I am a Gemini. Oh my god, there is a video game. Good. This is Underworld. Thank you so much for joining us on You Got to Know. We've been your hosts. If there's a show you want to see us discuss, let us know at Tied with a Bow on Twitter or at Hellish Rebuke Creative on Instagram. This show is made possible by your support, and that includes sharing us with your friends and family. Subject other people to this. Please consider supporting the show on Patreon. The link will be in the show notes below. Music for the show by Kevin McLeod. 